Welcome to International Relations Sensations at the University of Texas, Austin. My name is Varad Shah, and tonight we will be discussing the recent protests in Iran, backlash to China's zero COVID policy, recent clashes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, the upcoming Brazilian election, and recent developments in the Russia-Ukraine war. Tonight, I am joined by... Drew Wessels. Elizabeth Kerber. Siraj Pundit. Jacob Munter. Stephen Ahart. And uh, yeah, floor. All right, so today I'm going to be talking about the protests in Iran. So to fully comprehend the current situation, it's vital that we understand the structure of the Iranian government, as well as the political and cultural shifts that have taken place in the past two decades that have culminated in these events that we've seen in the last few weeks. So for background on how the Iranian government works, the Iranian chief executive authority or supreme leader, who usually has to have religious qualifications, is chosen by the Council of Clerics, which are elected people from elections that are done by the people of Iran. And the Supreme Leader then appoints the Guardian Council that in turn approves um, laws and candidates for public elections, including but not limited to the presidency. So effectively, the Supreme Leader is the highest office of government, higher than the presidency, and has authority over the military, government, and judiciary. Um, importantly, for this week's events, the military includes the well-known Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and this corps has an auxiliary wing called the Basij, who provides support in suppressing dissent and enforcing religious law. Um, in the past few weeks, the Basij have been mobilized to suppress the protests in the cities and more of the local-to-local -local basis. So, the president has authority to appoint the cabinet, make executive orders, and is the chief negotiator for foreign policy, but the supreme leader is indirect, uh, not indirectly, indirect control of the IRGC and the besiege, um, the Ayatollah is, so Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Um, so just keep that in mind when you're watching the mobilization of the IRGC and um, besiege riot police and arrest the prominent activists. No, that's the Supreme Leader. So that's the basic structure. And now we can move on to the more notable political and social shifts in Iran in the past few decades. So the first of these takes place in 2005. The gist is that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected to the presidency and the conservatives were placed in charge of the government at that time. Ahmadinejad would base the platform of his presidency on confronting Israel. This platform saw funding of anti-Israeli groups significantly increase, particularly to Hamas and Hezbollah, and the substantial oil and gas reserves of Iran were more or less overlooked in favor of a nuclear energy sector. Now, this is important because, as a result of this, the UN placed sanctions on the Iranian government, which severely deteriorated the state of the economy, and the value of the Iranian rial reduced from 8,000 rial to the dollar in 2005 to 42,000 rial to the dollar as of today. This is important for our story as it provides a subtle but nonetheless important grievance that the people have had towards the government and likely has had some effect on general popular discontent in the past few weeks, along with the cultural discontent. So that's 2005. The next major shift in Iranian politics took place in 2009. This time protests erupted in response to an election's results that were most likely fabricated. Unlike the 2005 election, the 2009 one featured high participation and the results of the elections were announced only two hours after the end of the votes, which is pretty indicative of fraud. So tip for all you want to be dictators out there, if you're going to fabricate election results, uh, make sure there's at least a shred of plausible deniability. It's just a smart thing to do. But anyways, when protests erupted there, um, there was the inevitable government response of brutal crackdowns on dissent. These included jailed reporters blaming the United States and Zionist forces for influencing public opinion, and many rapes and suspicious deaths of activists in jail deemed as suicides and health-related problems. 
The government, just like this past week, also shut down all internet uh, activity in the country and barred any communication from traversing across the border, either physically or digitally, to the outside world. These efforts are intended to curb demonstrators' ability to organize and makes it difficult for outsiders to even know what's happening inside the country. So all of these combined tactics have been present in the riots the past few weeks, as well as the riots in 2019, which were in response to high fuel prices, but these riots are in response to cultural dissent. But these same tactics are being employed. So they have a clear-cut strategy, the government, to crack down on dissent, and thus far it's been 100% successful in preserving the regime. There has not been a regime change as a result of protests in the past 20 years. So in the 2010s, there was kind of a cultural shift that began to take place. Iranian women in this decade heavily contested the hijab mandates and pushed back against laws such as the ones that allowed men to divorce more easily than women, laws that granted men exclusive custody of children, um, laws that lifted restrictions on polygamy for men, lowered the marriage age for girls, and required women to get their husband's or father's permission to travel. But um, for the most part, many of these offenses were ignored by the government, but as the 2020s would come along, this would change. Um, what a great decade so far. In 2021, a major political shift would occur. Ibrahim Raisi, an ultra-conservative, was elected into the presidency. He and Ayatollah Ali Khamenei have drastically cracked down on enforcement of strict social and religious rules, including hijab enforcement and cutting representation of women in advertisements. Fast forward to September 13th, 2022, and the onset of the current protest movement. What started it was this. Masa Amini, a Kurdish woman in the northwestern Iranian city of Sakhez, was arrested by morality police for a hijab violation. In police custody, Amini was beaten and tortured and ultimately died. As the news was broke thereafter, protests promptly erupted, first in the Kurdish northwestern region of Iran, but then gradually spreading to 31 provinces in total. By the time of this podcast recording, at least 76 people, both protesters and riot police, have been killed, and around 1,200 have been injured. The besieged riot police have escalated to beating protesters with batons or batons, and even fired live rounds into crowds. Amini's death and the besieged's response have drawn international condemnation, all the while Iran has termed the protesters thugs and declared that the U.S. and the EU are using the unrest to destabilize Iran. Again, this is not a new playbook. Iran has also, like in the previous two protest movements, shut down uh, Iranian internet and journalist documentation of events. Most information that we know of has come from second-hand sources and videos posted online, but the number of videos are decreasing in frequency per the day. This could be because there's less protests or because the videos can't be posted. Interestingly, the U.S. Treasury Department issued licenses last Friday that authorize U.S. companies to offer Iranian citizens secure internet platforms and services. Just for the record, a license is required because the technology is otherwise banned under sanctions. And one of the more interesting aspects of this developing situation as well is that the RGC has taken two artillery and drone strikes against what it's claimed are bases of Kurdish separatist groups. The RGC's attacks Um, have allegedly targeted the headquarters of separatist terrorists located in Iran's border area with Iraq and Azerbaijan this Monday morning, and the Kurdistan Human Rights Network has claimed that 17 people in Iran's Kurdish region have been killed, 435 injured, 570 arrested, and disturbing reports of besieged troops opening fire on protesters in multiple locations have come through. In the northern Iranian village of Balo, a young man by the name of Farjad Darvishi, who lived in the town, was shot and killed during unrest in a nearby city, and at his funeral the next day in Balo, a crowd of approximately 3,000 people gathered outside the local mosque, chanting martyrs live on and down with the dictator, a reference to Ali Khamenei. These slogans are commonly being used throughout all the protests in Iran. 
As the crowd moved from the mosque to the headquarters of the besieged in the village center, gunfire from the building again, killing two protesters and wounding three others. After the funerals of the two dead protesters, Bala villagers stormed the besieged building and set it on fire. More information to come. There has not been any video recording since or activity in the region, so we are kind of in the dark. It is also worth noting that just this morning, Iranian drones bombed the bases of an Iranian Kurdish opposition group in Iraq, killing at least nine people and wounding 32 others. This begs the question, how far will these protests spread, and what is the limit of Iranian government authority in the Kurdish state as a whole that spans multiple jurisdictions? As far as the way out of this, there's two possibilities. First, the violence will be crushed out just like the last two protests, or second, the Iranian regime as we know it will be overthrown in an Arab Spring-esque revolution. However, most foreign policy experts agree that the second option is unlikely to happen. For one, the protesters in Iran are different from the Arab Spring in that they are proponents of a separation between mosque and state, whereas protesters in Libya, Egypt, and just recently Algeria were Muslim traditionalists. This is different in that the moderates in Iran are less likely to be mobilized in comparison to the protesters of the Arab Spring. Additionally, the protests lack leadership, cohesion, and are made worse by internet blackouts, and all of this makes it more difficult to take on the Iranian security apparatus. So, all this to say, what will happen is unknown, but we can make our best predictions. Alright, any questions? Alright, in that case, we're going to be moving on to Elizabeth, who's going to be talking about quarantine policies in China and their subsequent backlash. Hey, so this week and last, a lot has been going on in the People's Republic of China. So, China has, had a, has adopted a zero COVID policy with regards to handling the COVID-19 pandemic. And this has created a lot of unrest in the country as it led to over two and a half years of on and off lockdowns. So in efforts to eliminate the virus, um, super strict mask mandates are still in place. Movement within the country is highly restricted and anybody coming into the country has to quarantine for at least a week. And people are also being taken to quarantine facilities run by the government if they're considered a close contact and will carry out their quarantine in these operated facilities. So in the early morning of September 18th, a nighttime bus taking about 45 residents of Guiyang deemed close contacts to a quarantine facility 180 miles away crashed, and this killed at least 27 people that we know of right now. So Guiyang is the capital of Guizhou, um, a province located in southwest China, and they reported 41 new COVID cases the Tuesday before this event. So this created a rush of close contacts to quarantine centers, and the bus crashed at 2.40 a.m. However, this was in violation of Chinese regulations that say that passenger buses are not allowed to, like under any circumstances, drive on highways between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. because of safety concerns. So discontent is now growing with these policies since people are feeling that human life is being put at risk for the sake of having no COVID cases and upholding the zero COVID policy. So we don't know if this event will spark any demonstrations of this public dissatisfaction, discontent. However, they're pretty unlikely since there's a history within the country of having little to no tolerance for organized resistance. Questions? Yeah, um, so you talked about these, uh, these facilities. Um, do we know about other instances of these kinds of horrific, um, you know, accidents happening as a result of China trying to quickly contain this virus in their typical authoritarian method? I haven't seen from the research that I've done any other examples of accidents in transporting people. 
However, I have seen that when people are being like, not rounded up, but like informed that they should be going to a quarantine facility, it's like a definite thing. You must carry out your quarantine in this facility. And oftentimes these quarantines can take anywhere from two weeks to a month until you're cleared. And these are government operated facilities, so we don't fully know what is happening inside of them. But yeah. Uh, did it say like with what you were looking at, um, if it was pretty typical, if the facilities were like so far from where the residents lived, or if there was like more that were a lot closer? I mean, because like 180 miles is quite a far, far away. No, it definitely is. I am under the impression from the research that I was looking at that people are having to travel to make it to these quarantine facilities because there are not going to be quarantine facilities in every city. So you will have to travel to be able to report to them and carry out quarantine there. All right, <coughs> and moving on to Siraj, talking about the recent border skirmishes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Yeah, thank you. Um, so recently, on uh, September 14th of this year, um, it was reported that, uh, according to Human Rights Watch, over 100 people were killed in clashes on the border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, uh, of which 37 were civilians, including four young children. Um, and including uh, nearly 137,000 people who had to be evacuated uh, from the region due to the violence. Um, and uh, as well as uh, temporary shelters being established um, to house the temporary displaced people. Um, many of these shelters have been built and set up in schools. Um, and this has, of course, impeded uh, education and uh, impeded the uh, progression of not just the people affected, but people in the surrounding areas that have had to take in these large numbers of, of internally displaced peoples. Um, now, just to provide some context about this issue, um, while this is the deadliest uh, border conflict that has occurred between uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, there have been other conflicts, such as last year uh, 20, uh, of 2021, April 2021. Um, and uh, this conflict does, uh, unfortunately, trace its roots back partly to uh, certain policies by the Soviet Union. Um, now, to provide some context uh, of the region of Central Asia in general, you know, Central Asia, Central Asia is a region that might not get as much coverage as other parts of the world, perhaps. Um, and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are two uh, former Soviet republics that um, may not get as much attention as other Soviet republics, but similar to um, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, similar to what's going on in, in Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, and similar to some of the uh, ethnic tensions that have also occurred in Kazakhstan, northern Kazakhstan, um, between ethnic Russians and, and Kazakhs, uh, the the policies um, of the Soviet Union in the late 19th century were essentially to uh, take over this area of Central Asia, which had been populated by numerous different empires, numerous different people groups, um, and specifically in the area that is now um, Uzbekistan and, and parts of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, there was a, a emirate called the Emirate of Bukhara, uh, it was an Islamic dynasty, an Islamic Turkic dynasty, and when the Russians invaded, um, they essentially took over much of this area, and in an attempt to prevent the local people from rising up, um, they attempted to basically take the land that they had conquered and draw borders in a way that would create these new nations um, based on ethnic and cultural differences, even though this region hadn't really experienced hard-set borders, um, and traditionally, 
you had empires that had very loosely defined borders that often change as a result of conflicts, uh, con uh, conquest and conflict. Um, and part of the Soviet Union's plan was to take the Fergana Valley, which is a very fertile and very populated region um, in eastern Uzbekistan that also borders Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and essentially take this ethnically diverse mixed area and draw borders cutting right through it in a very arbitrary and often very um, messy way um, that, uh, that cut through different people groups, divided villages, and if you look at a map of the border between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, you'll notice that there are numerous enclaves and, and exclaves of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan in the respective countries. Uh, and the borders themselves are very jagged and, and undefined, um, as well as minority communities of different ethnic groups being stranded on opposite sides of the border. And so naturally, this is all a, a great recipe for disaster, as um, you know, conflict has, has existed on the border since 1991. And, um, there have been repeated, uh, repeated instances of uh, ups and downs, times of peace, but then times of conflict again. And this is not too dissimilar from, you know, when we see other uh, large imperial powers imposing borders upon the people that they ruled over. We've seen a lot of border conflicts uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa. We've seen border conflicts in the Middle East. We've seen a lot of ethnic and religious conflicts in these areas. And so Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan follows a similar pattern. Um, to these other parts of the world that have uh, experienced uh, Western imperialism. And um, as of now, uh, it, is, it is unlikely that either side um, will necessarily be willing to uh, you know, give large concessions of their land to the other country. Um, however, uh, there are many in, in both countries who have proposed um, some sort of uh, redrawing or, or slight remodification of the borders that would align with what the people of these countries actually want, as opposed to carrying on with these old borders um, which were imposed on them uh, against their will by a country that really didn't understand the customs and the traditions and the history of the of the people that, that were involved in this. Right. And uh, both these countries are both in um, that Russian organization, the CSTO, right? Yes, that is correct. All right, yeah. So what role has Russia played in trying to serve as a mediator between these two former Soviet states? Like, I know what, like, it's previously occupied by Ukraine, but is it has, has it had any role in getting these two states to come to the negotiation table, or is it mostly stayed out of the conflict entirely? Um, so based off of what I've read, I don't think Russia has had too much of a direct influence in, in what's been going on. Um, there have been calls, of course, from around the world uh, for peace and, and reconciliation. Um, and then also, interestingly enough, the United Kingdom. The UK uh, brought this issue forward to the uh, CSOE. Um, and uh, ask that you know other countries in the CSOE work with them, work with Russia to try to um, you know find a way to to create uh, peace and, and stability in this region. All right, and now on to Jacob to talk about the upcoming presidential elections in Brazil. Jacob, currently um, it, there are two front runners for the election: uh, current president Jair Bolsonaro and uh, former president Luis uh, Inácio Lula da Silva. Everybody just calls him Lula. So for the purpose of this uh, podcast, I will be using the name Lula. Uh, Bolsonaro, he's the current uh, 38th president of Brazil. Uh, he's been president since 2019. Um, in Brazil, they're uh, much like the United States. It's a four-year presidential term, and uh, you can serve two consecutive limits, or two consecutive terms, although uh, you can run again uh, later in life uh, 
the rules are a little weird there. Um, for Bolsonaro, this is uh, not his first go around in politics. Um, from 1991 to 2018, Bolsonaro served in Brazil's Chamber of Deputies, which is comparable to the U.S.'s uh, House of Representatives, so just basically a lower house of Congress. Um, during his time in uh, the Chamber of Deputies, he uh, became well known for his national conservatism. Uh, he is a vocal opponent of things that I think are you know, basic human rights, uh, opponent of same-sex marriage. Uh, homosexuality, abortion, affirmative action, drug liberalization, and secularism. Um, he has uh, said some things that um, I cannot repeat on this podcast, and it uh, kind of puts Trump's mean tweets and comments to shame, which during the course of this podcast, I want to make uh, some connections between what's going on in Brazil right now to what uh, happened in uh, 2020 with uh, President Trump. Um during his presidency, uh, Bolsonaro, he also rolled back protections for indigenous groups in the Amazon rainforest and has per, uh, facilitated the uh, ongoing destruction of the Amazon. Um, he signed off on many logging and mining endeavors. Um, so yeah, uh, similar to Trump losing his uh, cabinet members to resignation, Bolsonaro has also lost his ministers of justice, education, the Secretary of Government, and the Head of the Postal Service, and uh, m many, many more, uh, because well, they just fell out of favor with him and uh, they decided to resign. Um, another Trump move, much like him moving off of Twitter because he fell off out of favor with Twitter, he fell out of favor within his own party, and uh, the Social Liberal Party, and began his own, titled the Alliance for Brazil, which is now defunct, but he tried. Uh, Bolsonaro's response uh, to COVID-19 also quite lackluster. Um, he was criticized uh, across the political spectrum in Brazil uh, because he sought to downplay the pandemic and its effects. Um, he opposed quarantine measures and uh, dismissed two health ministers during the time. All the while the death toll was increasing very rapidly in Brazil. Um, and obviously because of uh, his less than uh, uh, less than uh, appreciable uh, policy. Brazil suffered a high death rate in comparison to uh, other South American countries. Uh, Brazil suffered 650 plus thousand deaths from COVID. Um, however, during this election, uh, unlike Trump, Bolsonaro may have the Brazilian military in his back pocket. He's a former uh, paratrooper and uh, Back in 1986, he first gained, gained uh, fame, household fame, um, when he publicly shamed the uh, military leaders for cutting officers due to budget cuts, um, all the while they were saying it was because of deviation of behavior. Uh, so, um, and he's also placed a couple military leaders in his cabinet. So um, it looks like things can go south pretty quick. Uh, his opponent, however, uh, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva Lula has served as president before. He was the 35th president from uh, 2003 to 2010. Um, during his time as a president, he seemed to be the antithesis of everything Bolsonaro stands for, until you look at his controversies tab on Wikipedia, but I'll get into that later. Um, Lula, uh, in his time in office, introduced sweeping social programs, including Bolsa Familia and Fome uh, Zero. These uh, programs were aimed at combating poverty and lifting 
the uh, station of the country's working class. Um, they were basically a welfare and food programs giving uh, access to uh, uh, lower class people to, uh, you know, affordable restaurants and basic food items that, you know, everybody should uh, be able to uh, have access to. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Lula is not without his own scandals. In 2015, charges were levied against Lula that he had taken a large sum of bribe money from the president of Odebrecht, which is basically a Brazilian business conglomerate. They control oil, steel, um, you know, a lot of the big industrial business of Brazil. And uh, this Odebrecht president was arrested for supposedly giving out 230 million in bribes to various uh, politicians in Brazil. Uh, subsequently, uh, Lula was charged with corruption. Um, it is believed that he had taken around $3 million in bribe money. And uh, in 2017, he was sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. Um, he appealed, obviously, um, and then was not only charged with corruption again, but money laundering as well. His, ex his sentence was then extended uh, to 12 years. And then finally, in March of 2021, uh, after many, many appeals, the Supreme Federal Court of Brazil found uh, that the judge that sentenced Lula uh, originally in his first case was biased against him, uh, making all evidence used against him uh, inadmissible. He was freed. Um, now he's running for president again. Um, again, seriously cannot... Uh, uh, you know, stress this enough, his controversies and scandals tab on Wikipedia goes crazy. Uh, see for yourself, this is not his only boo-boo, uh, but probably his biggest one. He did go to jail for a whole year. Um, so obviously there's some big nerves and some big personalities coming into this uh, election, but why are people afraid of it? Well, uh, in the current news, uh, Lula is leading polls, um, which is the cause for concern, as uh, it is believed Bolsonaro will not give up office even if he loses. Um, this has been seen, uh, Bolsonaro is already bracing for a loss, he's doing a Trump-style Stop the Steal campaign. Um, this has led, obviously, to a decline in Brazilian confidence in their uh, election process, with two out of three Brazilians polled saying that they had no confidence in the election process. I am not making that number up, that was a Gallup poll. Um, I think this can be attributed to Bolsonaro as Brazil actually has one of the more secure voting systems in the world with electronic voting apparati, apparatuses, whatever you want to say, uh, being constructed in the late 90s um, specifically to combat fraud that was happening in Brazil at the time. And um, they are pretty much agreed upon uh, that they're impossible to hack or tamper with. They're not connected to the internet. Um, and since Bolsonaro, like I said earlier, has been an advocate for the military, um, it is feared that if a January 6th-style insurrection occurs, Bolsonaro may be uh, backed by the Brazilian military, which could lead to a very scary military coup. Um, that is something that South America, you know, is not a stranger to. Um, some even are saying, win or lose, Bolsonaro may take down a Brazilian democracy through such a military coup, and uh, he may reorganize the Brazilian government totally. Um, he has explicitly stated at multiple rallies that he would rather die than leave office. Um, 
ramifications for if uh, an insurrection occurs or if uh, Lula happens to lose. Um, I think first and foremost, the most important thing is the Amazon rainforest. Um, we obviously have to breathe and uh, sustain life on Earth. So uh, if Bolsonaro's policy continues, um, we may not have an Amazon anymore. While uh, Lula's, Lula's policy as president was actually geared towards saving the Amazon. Uh, he was very protective of indigenous land and, um, you know, did not allow mining projects and logging projects to uh, fester during his time. So basically, for Brazil, democracy may hang in the balance. Uh, if Bolsonaro refuses to leave and the military decides to back him, it could be pretty violent. Um, uh, First off, does anybody have any questions? I know I have some questions for y'all. Yeah, I, I was wondering, uh, since we're seeing like a lot of negative reactions to mobilization in Russia, we're seeing Iranian protests, do you think that we can maybe see like a massive scale? But, I don't know, because I'm kind of, like the, the lack of faith in democracy at this point is like, would there even be enough motivation, enough organization to get behind this, like, when the military is, is so supportive? Probably not, but uh, I think as we saw in, um, I believe it was Malaysia a year ago, that military oh, coup... Myanmar, right? Oh, Myanmar, thank you. That military coup was um, obviously fought against people, you know, died, were dying on the streets there, so I think something mm -hmm. similar to Myanmar may happen. They, I don't know if you've seen the videos, but they have like really and creative like uh, basically pipe weapons that they're doing and like just armed resistance to the military, which is crazy to think about. But I I wonder if we would see some something like that in a, a country like Brazil. Very possible. Um, so, any other questions, you guys? Before I ask y'all, just a couple basic. Yeah. Um. So. Just to go off of, of Stephen's question, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've, we've obviously seen numerous people rising up against authoritarian regimes across the world. Um, do you think, I mean, given that, you know, Bolsonaro clearly had a lot of support mm -hmm. in the past couple of years, mm -hmm. um, do you see that, that support perhaps decreasing because of some of the negative issues you talked about? Or do you think, like, perhaps he still has a lot of popularity? And, you know, what might those factors be? Because obviously, you know, I'm assuming the Brazilian people, you know, they, they want what's best for them. And if Absolutely. they feel like he's best for them, I'm just curious, like, what might the reasons behind that be? Um, f based on my research and uh, what's been happening in the news every day, every day Lula's lead grows bigger and bigger, and every day Bolsonaro gets more and more and more um, desperate. Um, so I think support for Bolsonaro is decreasing based on you know the things that he's saying at rallies like uh, I can either die go to jail or stay in office and I will never go to jail he's <laughs> been saying that pretty much on a daily basis not really but he said that multiple times um, so I think uh, people are wary of him and uh, you know his support is definitely decreasing um, do you guys think that the military will back Bolsonaro? No? 
I don't know enough about Brazilian military structure. Like, understandable. Like, I know in the U.S., we have mechanisms in place in which there's civilian control of the military to prevent this exact thing from happening. Right. I don't necessarily know if that's the case in Brazil, but yeah. when you're looking at a country in which one president, like, has such strong backing of, like, a particular faction, like, in the U.S., the military, while it is considered, like, more conservative, I do think, like, it's a pretty even split between Democratic and more Republican voting members. Mm-hmm. I necessarily don't know the case, if that's the case in Brazil, but if it's so that, like, Bolsonaro has such a strong stranglehold on the military, I do think that even if he loses, we might see, like, some particularly messy side effects if, if he refuses to step down. Me too, me too. Um, from what I understand, he does have some pretty strong support from the military. I'm not sure about the entire Brazilian military, but... Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure a good portion of it. Um, and then finally, I want to ask y'all, um, Manuel Noriega Part 2, Panama Part 2 maybe? Um, even though the U.S. didn't install him, quote-unquote, uh, he has been, Bolsonaro, um, a pretty major supporter of the U.S., especially during uh, Trump's time in office. Um, but he could be dangerous for stability in South America. So do you think if... Uh, he does uh, end up, um, you know, staying in office or uh, refusing to give it up. Will there be, you know, some kind of U.S. intervention? I think it depends on um, on Lula. I don't know enough about him and, and his political views on the United States, but I think, like, if, if the United States, you know, if our intelligence agencies feel like, I um, mean, our government and, you know, whatnot... Uh, you know, it, it really depends on the incentives, and that's all what it comes down to historically, right? I mean, if, if it's in our interest to, you know, work with Lula, then mm-hmm. I think Lula will, you know, Lula will pursue a great relationship with the United States. Um, if we feel like, you know, Lula's a threat to our national security, if that's the policy that's decided on by our government, then I think, you know, they'll take the action against him to, you know, preserve our own uh, national security and status, which is, you know, kind of what they've always done. Agreed. I guess on that point, like, if you want to place Lula on the political scale in the U.S., I guess, where would he fall? Would he fall more towards the center-left with people like Biden, or would he be more of a Bernie, Justice Dems, AOC type character? Somewhere in the middle of that, from what I understand. I'm feeling an Andrew Yang out of this description. (laughs) I guess in that case, with Biden and, like, his new administration, he's been a big proponent of, like, Readvancing the U.S. as a supporter of democracy necessarily, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which has kind of led him to try and distance himself with many countries that Trump was pretty tight with, like Russia for one, obviously. Right. Yeah. I think even Israel and Saudi Arabia, he was a little bit more receptive to Palestine during his visit in the region. Yes. Yeah, I can't remember the exact comment he made, but there was something when he, he visited Jerusalem, there was something he did, and he was like very... So I do think in that case, even if we have more left-wing governments in South America, like, this is not the Cold War anymore, I guess. Like, we do have a more, like, central-left administration in the U.S., so I do feel we might be a little more, okay, we can work with these guys. Like, they're not, like, full-on revolutionaries like we're seeing in Venezuela right now, which is a completely different story. But I do feel like Biden, in the case of if Lula wins, they will try to make sure that these election results go through and they don't want any further instability in, like, south of the border in South America. Agreed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I wonder, um, 
kind of Raj's point, more of how this affects the, the countries around it, right? Because we saw Chile recently, they didn't vote in favor of a much more, uh, you could say, I mean, Professor Mosser basically said that it was the most explicitly left-wing constitution ever written, um, and it was denied, you know, it was voted down. Even though they voted like 70% in favor uh, for a new constitution, but like 65% voted against it. So I wonder how much sentiment there may be of, of conservatism, even within these countries that want change, like Chile, how there may be some like cultural conservatism for things like abortion rights. You know, we see that a lot with like uh, Argentina and like uh, Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. So wondering how, if we have another, let's say Bolsonaro, you know, a very right-wing populist in South America, if that would bolster other populist within other countries. Okay, and with that, to finish us off, we have Stephen talking about recent developments in Ukraine, such as their counterattack, mm-hmm. and the announcement of the recent partial mobilization by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Stephen? Uh, so I'm going to start a little bit in August, actually. It kind of sets up some of what we saw with Kharkiv uh, Oblast. So um, we can... One of the earliest things that I wanted to kind of draw attention to was Amnesty International, uh, August 4th. There was a controversy with them basically saying, oh, Ukraine was conducting, uh, was essentially baiting Russian forces into urban areas. And while technically, yes, this is violation of certain international norms, uh, it wasn't exactly feasible to defend uh, any other way. And this was also... um, this was not like putting weapons within civilian apartments. This was like putting weapons like within schools that were emptied or like police stations. So yeah, it was using strategic locations within urban warfare, but this is not, um, you know, a war crime, essentially, uh, to, to put it lightly. Even though it was framed that way, um, with many pushing back on this and being like, this is pretty much just giving into Russia uh, because you're not calling them out for, as we'll I'll get into in a little bit, like things we saw recently with the Izium war crimes, which are reflective of war crimes that have happened throughout uh, occupied Ukraine, and that the ISW has, um, can, they said that this has corroborated the reports that Bukha is like not a uh, isolated incident, so that we are going to see more civilian deaths, um, and we have like the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, where they're sending out field reporters um but we after that ukraine um kind of after these comments on august 6th Zelensky called with uh the zaporizhia nuclear power plant um there was being shelled and ukraine wasn't trying to shell a nuclear power plant that was like literally across the river from defensive positions um i it's pretty clear that they would not want to violate international norms in that regard and anger Western countries who are providing support. So um, Zelensky called Russian shelling of the area uh, surrounding the plant a uh, an act of terror, a state-sponsored act of terror, and called on other countries um, to also uh, call Russia officially a state actor of terror. And all the U.S., there's a recent update with this, the U.S. has not, and Biden has called for hesitant um, and more conservative remarks to Russia in that regard. 
Um, but 42 states have officially called uh, Russia a state actor of terror um, since August 14th. And with this, like the nuclear power plant was a huge deal. Um, and I don't want to understate its significance now. It is not a de facto safe zone. Uh, or sorry, it is not a um, demilitarized zone yet still. However, um, it was operating as a de facto safe zone for Russian forces as they could, on the opposite side of the uh, Dnepr River, could shell places like uh, Nikopol and would not be able to be retaliated against because Ukraine obviously would not want to attack, one, I mean, such expensive infrastructure like that, but two, because of the safety concerns. Um, <clears throat> and there, were, there was clear evidence, satellite imagery, there was video footage taken from inside the facility over um, the, uh, sorry, I thought they were coming in. Um, over AA guns, military vehicles being stored within 30 meters of uh, reactors. The Insider, uh, which is an opposition Russian um, newspaper, claimed that Turbine One was mined by the uh, Russians and was set to blow in the energy room. There was other claims that um, soldiers were like lighting cigarettes in the nuclear power plant <laughs> next to military equipment. Explosives were kept within inside the plant, so very not safe things at all. Um, but August was a pretty big start of a shift. We didn't see major advances, but we saw a lot of a lot of things happen, a lot of small incidences that paved the way for what we saw um, recently in September with Kharkiv Oblast and Kherson. So part of this uh, was Crimea. So one of the biggest dates for the Ukrainian military as of now has been um, August 9th. So nine military aircraft were destroyed at uh, Saki Air Base, which is in Crimea. And although um, Zelensky later made comments that essentially officially confirmed it, before there was just sly comments from Ukraine that hinted that it was them, uh, but Russia claimed that it was an accident that nine of their aircraft were destroyed, which is the single largest loss of Russian aircraft since the Second World War. Um, and this was a huge accomplishment because to many soldiers, Ukraine or Crimea seemed out of uh, reach for Ukraine. And to have a target that was 220 kilometers behind um, Ukrainian lines shows that there was obviously, and then that's out of range for high Mars, right? that's out of range for a lot of these U.S. weapon systems, for Western weapon systems that were given to Ukraine. So we can see that this has pointed to, and that a, um, there was a senior Ukrainian official who anonymously told the New York Times that it was basically special forces that uh, have been working and operating behind Russian lines. Um, and this <clears throat> was somewhat confirmed with throughout the month of August, there were several more military um, aircraft bases and airfields that were destroyed. There were several ammo uh, depots, oil rigs, infrastructure. Um, so, and also part of this um, that has played into these Ukrainian victories and ability to have advances in Kherson was these air bases being destroyed. 
causing the uh, Russian aircraft to pull back more towards Russia and less from the front line uh, in Crimea and from the Kherson Oblast. So we see that like Russia and other conflicts that they had in Georgia and Syria, they maintained air superiority. But in this conflict, they haven't. And that's been a big reason as to why Ukraine has been able to push back so much. Um, and then this was complemented also by August 12th, the last bridgehead over the um, Dnieper River, uh, which is close-ish to the nuclear power plant Kherson, was destroyed. Um, and this caused the Russians to stay on the east bank of the Dnieper. So like this allowed for even more advances towards Kherson, towards these major objectives, uh, which led into hmm, September 1st through the 8th, a thousand kilometers were liberated. But then on September 9th, within one day, 1,500 kilometers were liberated in um, Kharkiv Oblast, which led to the capture of Izium um, and the Kherson line closing in at the same time as a like dual operation. And this was on September 13th, the first instance of the Kremlin admitting defeat in Kharkiv. Um, they never admitted defeat when they pulled out of Kiev. They said it was just to reinforce uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And same for Snake Island. They just said it was to reinforce other areas of the Black Sea. So this was a big step, and um, a lot of analysts think it's to shift blame for Putin onto the Russian Ministry of Defense. And this happened on September 13th, and then we saw later, uh, but September 21st, Putin ordered mobilization, or partial mobilization. Um, so we think that some of these comments and some of this willingness to push back on the military itself, one, uh, it was showing a divide between uh, the Kremlin and um, the military, but also to kind of shift away from Putin. Um, and this has led to the military, um, it's been reported that Putin has been bypassing senior officials and has essentially like tried to operate and command the war himself, uh, which has not been going great for him. And um, this has kind of started that rift as well. Um, so we saw September 16th that Izium mass graves were confirmed and that this corroborates a lot of other reports. Um, but that this is where we really, I think I can, we can see Putin's, Putin coming out into, like this is him directly controlling. September 17th through the 18th, Russia conducted just like meaningless offensive operations. All they did was attack like in Donetsk city, which is where the front line essentially is. It's very, uh, it's very close. They pushed, slightly onto the river and got a few villages but like the ukrainian defenses still held and they were just not showing up lines that could have been used to defend izium the lines of ground lines of communication were cut off like they were not able to secure a defensive line um and a lot of this has just led into also uh with this like these meaningless gains Russia is not relying upon um, like true standard Russian army forces. It was relying a lot of uh, proxy forces and a lot of these uh, defensive coalition, like the um, pro-war residents. And so these irregular units are not providing like the same advances that we see. A lot of them are demoralized because they feel that they're being used as like cannon fodder. 
Um, so a lot like the Donetsk Republic uh, and the Luhansk, those soldiers are like, they feel the worst off compared to any of them. Um, but that also, because they were relying on these irregular forces, is part of the reason we think that Putin did mobilize on the 21st. But the ISW has reported that mobilization efforts aren't going to affect the war. In uh, even if it's un, it is unsure. We will we will have to see if mobilization efforts will allow Russia to offset losses that they have in Ukraine. But it won't because it's an incremental and it's going to be done in phases. It's not going to be enough to shore up defenses like within these. Although the 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 line has slowed down recently, it's still not going to be enough to. Um, to stop Ukraine from advancing to where they, they have so far. Um, so yeah, it's, it's gonna be a long-term effort and the ISW believes that it won't be until 2023 that we'll see uh, a good number of troops actually be mobilized. Yeah, definitely. So I guess one question I have for you is, I don't know if you've seen these videos of these guys getting their like recruitment notices like handed out to them in the street or whatnot, but um, how much of an effect do you think this is going to have on the situation on the front line, like when these new recruits actually do hit the so field? It will be interesting because with mobilization, Putin also uh, increased penalties for desertion. He increased penalties for like draft dodging. Um, and so I don't, I believe it was 10 years in prison. I don't think, I, I don't think it affects your family or anything, but you know, that may be some hesitation for some people, but uh, there have been reports, especially in the Kharkiv blast when they were encircled of mass surrendering. So it wouldn't be a surprise um, for me, for a lot of these young men, like they don't want to die. Like they, of course they would, they would surrender, but you know, they're not going to be deployed for months and they're going to have to go through basic there. But Although some have, there have been some reports that there have been people who have been conscripted and are just going straight to the front line. So we'll, we will see how many of those are, are confirmed. But um, with, I, I, it shows a lot of outrage. Uh, there was one report recently of a recruitment officer being shot four times. Yeah, so I think, I don't know how much of it would be like, oh, this is gonna be a massive revolt because I don't see that happening. I mean. You know, people said the same thing about the Tsar in 1905, but it, it, Russia at this point is very large and it's not, winter setting in, you know, like a lot of these cities are very distant, especially in the east, like these, these cities aren't going to be staging some independence in the middle of winter, you know. So I, I see this more as like, this is definitely going to be pushed back from a lot of men and a lot of uh, even like 40-year-old men are being pushed in the line. But how much it would actually affect Putin staying in power, I don't know. I, he may have overplayed his hand. I mean, he made that promise to the people that he would, like, mobilization wouldn't happen. Any other 